Well, again, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. I had the opportunity this week to have a number of conversations with several of you following last week's good design and appreciated hearing your thoughts and your feedback. And one of the questions that I got frequently was, are the sessions that were a part of that available online? And some of you, I told you, no, they're not available online. Turns out I was wrong about that. Um, they are available, and so I wanted to make that known to you. Those can be, you can go to chapelstreet.church um, slash gooddesign, those sessions, as well as several of the resources that were mentioned or talked about as a part of Good Design, those are also posted there uh, with links that you can find them on Amazon or wherever else. So that is available. And um, I think one of the things that I took away from last weekend was kind of, um, I think this was Pastor Brian's phrasing, but he's talking about that uncomfortable space of living in grace and truth. And I, it's so much easier to camp out in kind of grace or in truth and sort of reside there, but Jesus came as one full of grace and truth, and he asked his church to join him there. And so that's what we continue to do. That's what we continue to be our desire and what we do imperfectly. Um, so thank you again. For, for being a part of that. Uh, I was remembering um, years ago when my kids were small, one of those windows, and, and those of you who are parents can relate to this at some version, where the stomach flu just goes through the house. You know, like there was times when my kids were little where it just, my home looked like complete devastation, like a war scene, bodies strewn everywhere, each like person seeking to survive kind of on their own. And in this particular instance, uh, uh, one of my little ones, one of my girls was sick with the flu. I think it, I think it was Laney, but we're, we're, it's, it could have been one of the other ones. But um, you're trying to, hopefully through the worst of it, you're trying to kind of like settle them in, maybe get some rest or whatever. And this sad little uh, sick face looked up at me and said, Dad, why did Adam and Eve have to eat that fruit? Uh, <laughs> um, and I would venture to guess, honestly, that most of us have said something. We've had some kind of similar experience in the midst of pain or suffering, some kind of similar experience when we observe brokenness, whether it's in our own lives, our own experience, our own hearts, or in the world around us, or maybe in the lives of, of people where we have asked a very similar question. Like, why are things this way? Why does this have to be the case? Now, this expression of a child who is experiencing sickness and and really in kind of this childlike way, just lamenting the implications of what we talk about theologically as original sin. The experience of that reality that this is not how things were designed to be. And I recognize in, in our cultural moment, the whole, the whole concept, even that word of, of sin, right? That for many of us evokes powerful emotions and response. And I think it certainly does 
for, for the world. If you grew up in the church, if you've been around for a while, maybe that has some ring of familiarity. Maybe there's a comfortability with that word. But in, in the world around us, the word itself is, is kind of offensive, right? It's sometimes talked about as this tool of manipulation where it wields guilt and shame as a, as a means to produce fear and fear that results in control. The whole idea of it is kind of an offense to our sense of autonomy, of moral freedom. It psychologically damages our sense of, of self-worth. And if I'm being completely honest with you, I think there have been times where the theology of sin has been taught in such a way that makes this a fair critique. So at times, if, if, if I've talked about sin and I've talked about it in a way that's kind of a you problem or a them problem instead of a me problem or an us problem, I, that's a fair, honest critique of that. And I can get why somebody would arrive there. But on the other hand, culturally, moral outrage has become something of a new form of power. Seemingly gone are the days where political and societal debates make their case and an opposing argument is offered in response where the points find places of agreement and disagreement. But rather now, opposing sides stand on opposite sides of the room and they call each other evil. There is a strong sense of moral and ethic uh, orthodoxy that is present in each of their camps. And if you challenge that orthodoxy, or if you disagree with the laws of a specific ideology, then you must be exposed, right, for your sin. If you doubt me on this, Scroll through Twitter for 10 minutes. Uh, that's too long. Three minutes. <laughs> and you will see both complete moral autonomy. It's totally up to me. And moral outrage side by side, sometimes in, in one singular expression or tweet. And again, it evokes this question in all of us. How did we get here? What happened? We've been studying Genesis 1 and 2, and for seven weeks now, we've talked about God's design. We've talked about what he created and how it's described as good. And in Genesis 2, where we left off a couple weeks ago, humanity is experiencing the goodness and the generosity of God's creation. They're living in perfect harmony, not only to creation, but also with themselves and to the creator. But this isn't our experience. Far from it. Now we dive into what went wrong. Before we open God's word today, let's, let's pause and pray together. Father, we're going to dive into just a, a very painful and, and um, difficult truth. And uh, it leaves us wondering sometimes. And yet in the very midst of it we also see your grace and your mercy being poured out so just holy spirit speak in our presence today and we might hear from you and it's in your name we pray amen this is genesis chapter 3 genesis chapter 3 i'm going to read through the text today and then we'll kind of go back and and walk through some some observations together 
Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat of it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to me, gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It feels almost necessary to just grieve for a second. To to recognize that the brokenness and, and the pain and the suffering that we experience in ourselves and in our world is not, it's not the result of, of design, but it's the result of rebellion. Here in Genesis, we're, we're made aware of the fact that there is an enemy who is acting to subvert God's good design. In fact, that's where we start here. He he implements a subversive strategy, a subversive strategy. Look again at, at that first verse in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the most cunning. That, that Hebrew word there is not, it's not a negative. It's used in both the positive sense and the Proverbs, like a, like a shrewdness. So it's not this disposition that is is evil about it it's it's the one who is wielding he's the most cunning of all the wild animals that the lord god had made and he said to the woman did god really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden so he, he starts to implement this strategy of of taking one thing and making it look like another right as a kid, my, my mom's dad, my grandpa Dininger, was, is a farmer and a, uh, a country boy, you know, and grew up and, and would take us hunting and fishing and that sort of thing. And I, as a kid, I never, I never liked fish. I always thought it was gross. I like fish now, didn't like it as a kid. And my grandpa, when we were out fishing, caught these catfish and came home and and flayed it up and cooked it and we had catfish for dinner and I think it was because I thought my grandpa was so cool but I was like this is good this is good food you know and we would go home and on occasion like my mom would would make fish but it would be like you know like 
Vandy camps kind of stuff. Like you've made it in the oven. And I always said, Mom, I, o- I don't like cat. I only like fish that's catfish. That's the only kind of fish I like. I don't like other fish. And said, well, this is catfish. I was like, oh, this is catfish? And I was like, okay, then I must like this. And I ate it. And then I found the box in the garbage that clearly labeled this as cod. And I was like, I knew that I had been duped. Right now, the, the, the sense of this idea, right, where you take something and you make it out to be another. And I'm aware that I've just used an illustration where I painted my mom as the devil. In the, <laughs> and I just want you to know, she is a wonderful woman who pointed me to Jesus. And I owe a lot to her. See, in Genesis, we're, we are made aware of the fact that there is an enemy in the garden. And the Genesis narrative does not specifically identify who the serpent is. The book of Revelation adds some context to this. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we see um, the, the serpent referred to, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. So not only is there identity, but there's also sort of tactic that is expressed in this world, right? And it's fair to ask in the midst of this, if everything that God created in the garden is good, then how do we explain the presence of the serpent whose intent, his work is clearly to subvert God's design? Now we, I don't have, in the context of this sermon, we're not going to fully unpack kind of who is Satan and the devil? There's actually a really helpful book by Daniel Darling called The uh, Characters in Creation or Characters of Creation. It, it, his, he's got a chapter on this that's concise and it's helpful, but I'll try to give a, a quick overview here. Satan or, or the devil is described as an angel along with a, a group of angels who rebelled against God. So angels were created like human beings with moral agency they had the ability to choose to follow or not follow and so satan has this effort this act to set himself up as supreme authority the one who would determine for himself what is good and what is evil and once that that rebellion fails right since that time forward he has been actively working to subvert the purposes of god in the world like the the when it's like okay if i can't have what i want then nobody gets it kind of thing and so he's not only positioned himself against god but he has also positioned himself as the opponent to those who follow god this is why paul in the in the book of ephesians as he's instructing the church Right? He says the, the, the world is not your enemy. That's, that's not the one that you need to worry about. In, in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the world powers of this darkness, against spiritual forces of, of evil in, hev- in the heavens. So notice how the serpent then approaches Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Apparently, uh, (laughs) did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Do you see the subversion here? Is that what God said? That's not even really close to what God said. In Genesis 2, it, it says, God, these are God's instructions to Adam. 
You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on, it, on that day you will on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. The instruction that God gives to Adam is one of generosity. He, he says, it's all for you, Adam. There's abundance and there's provision and the one limitation that I'm giving you, it's not to hold something back, right? The one limitation that he places around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is for Adam's provision and his protection. Hear that again. Like the limitation that God gives Adam in the garden is, is, is for Adam's provision and protection, just as every command, every law that he gives his people is for our, our provision and our protection. But the, the serpent's strategy here is to subvert the command, to cast God not as one who is generous, but rather as one who is withholding. From the God who is good and designed you to flourish in his creation to a God who is keeping something back. And, and here's the question. Could a God who is keeping something, withholding something from you, could that God really love you? That's, that's the subversive strategy that the serpent institutes. Last week when Rachel was preaching... She was talking about her story and she was talking about her experience of, of uh, coming to faith in Christ and then growing in that faith and wrestling what, what obedience looked like. And she asked herself the question, she remembers asking herself the question, can I trust him? Can I trust him? This, I think, is the fundamental question that is being posed to Eve. It's posed to all of us. As we think about what does it mean to pursue Jesus, to walk with him, can I trust him? Is he, is he really good? Or is he withholding from us? Is he withholding his goodness? Is he stingy and, and selfish? See, you can, you can see how he continues to implement this strategy. Is he good and generous? Or is he holding something back? And from this, this strategy for Adam and Eve, a, a seed of doubt begins to be planted. It begins to take root. Again, in, in back in verses 2 and 3 now, it says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. I don't know if you've ever um, uh, been to like a, an illusionist, right? Somebody who's like good at sleight of hand or even just kind of like a street magician who does like a shell game or the card game, something like that, where, where you come in and you are fully aware, you're, you know, and are even being entertained by the fact that you're being deceived. Like that is, that's, there's kind of some, like you're trying to figure out how did they do that and where did it go and, and all that sort of thing. When we experience that same thing, but without that knowledge, right? It's no longer an illusion, it's a con. And here, what, what's unfolding in the text is, is an active con against Adam and Eve. Notice the progression that unfolds here in these verses, right? Instead of the, uh, identifying the lie that was pretty overt 
and, and acting on the creation mandate that Adam and Eve had been getting and saying, like, that's not true. You don't belong here. Get out. And notice Adam is, is right there with Eve. Like, he's fully observant of everything that's happened. Eve now responds to, to the serpent's question of her. And she says, well, you, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Again, is that what God said? Trimper Longman points out this is both the first example of an apologetic for God's word and the first example of legalism, in addition to God's word. Right? Adam and Eve have now added to God's command, and the serpent takes another step into this destructive plan. Now in verse 4, he says, no, you will not die. Like uh, 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 John Walton said, like in the Hebrew, it's, it's like... Um, don't be so certain about death or that death will unfold. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? Prior to this moment, up to now, it has been God who's been the one defining and providing what is good. God is the one with the knowledge of good and evil, but the serpent is sowing these seeds of doubt and will, now we're in the space where we're asking ourselves, will the human heart trust God's definition of good and evil or will it seize the opportunity to define good and evil on their own terms? And so the, the serpent comes at it like this. He says, the promise of it is, is do you want, or the question of it is, do you want to be like God? Again, what's the problem here? They already are. They already are like God. God has embedded in humanity his own image. He has laid on them his divine purpose. Do you see what he's doing here? So now the serpent's not only disoriented them as it relates to how they know or what they understand to be true about God, but he also causes them to doubt what God has told them is true about themselves. Right? They're beginning to forget their God-given identity. And again, I would contend that this remains his strategy to cause us to doubt what is true about him and to cause us to doubt what God has told us is true about ourselves. And alongside this doubt now, look at verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Right, the presentation of sin and and Genesis is, it's beautiful. It's appetizing, right? We would readily avoid it if, if, if it was presented as ugly and destructive. But now a seed about, of doubt about who God is and, and about who they are has taken root within the heart of humanity and they they decide to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. And the result, the result of this 
is the intrusion of, of shame and separation. It's this picture of, of shame and separation. Jump back to the very end of verse or of chapter two, verse twenty-five. It says both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. And now in verse seven of chapter three, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees. So the Lord God called out to man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I, th I just find verse 9 to be like one of the most depressing, like it just hurts to read it. And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I think we all, we have all experienced at one level or another, the sense of, of hiding that we feel when brokenness is present. Like when, when a relationship, even as a kid, right, I can remember when I knew that I was in trouble, like big time trouble, my strategy was to make myself scarce, right? One of my go-tos was the pretend to be asleep move. Like if there was like, wait till your dad's coming home. And when dad came home, which my mom never really employed that. Like she was like, I'll handle this on my own. Like you're in trouble. We'll deal with this right now. But if there was like a, a time when I'm waiting for impending judgment, right? And I knew it was like, my move was just to do the like, is, is it safe out here? Like pretend to be asleep, which never sort of worked for me. But that's a childlike expression of hiding. It's like, I know, there's, I know there's brokenness here, and so I need to avoid this at all costs. See, Genesis 3 provides us with the answer to the question, what went wrong? This, I'm going to put this definition up on, on the screen, or this quote, um, but the problem is I don't remember where I read it. So somebody said this, that's not me. Um, this is the core biblical explanation for the concept of sin, that desire to call the shots myself. It's the inward turn of the human heart to do what's good for me and for my tribe, even at the expense of you and your tribe. The problem is that we are horrible at defining good and evil without God. And the immediate result, the immediate implication is that shame enters in and shame causes separation. So where there was once complete transparency uh, within humanity, within the relationship each other, there's now self-alienation in the form of hiding. And that's not only experienced in the context of the relationship between Adam and Eve, but it's experienced in their relationship with their Creator. In verses 8 through 13, 
they are, are, there is both beauty and pain in this. God goes to meet with Adam and Eve in, in another translation, it says, in the cool of the evening to experience their presence and for them to experience being present with him just as he did. So what once, right, you would hear and he would evoke joy in your heart and you would run to now produces fear and you run from. And notice the series of questions that God begins to ask of them. He says, where are you? Right? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What is this have you done? Like, God is not seeking to obtain information here. It's not an effort to figure out what went wrong. But rather, I believe these questions represent the first expression of God inviting humanity into confession. He, he wants them to see their immediate need for restoration. But unfortunately, then they, they turn to blame. Adam's immediate response, right, is to blame God. Like, you, you gave me the woman. Eve, in turn, then blames the serpent. You see, from the, the very outset of, of brokenness, of sin entering into the narrative, we see it countered by the grace and mercy of God. He invites us into that confession to run to him, to find wholeness in him. When we could not make our way to God, this is, you know, we've talked about this whole series, the gospel in Genesis. We are going to begin to see God making his way to us. And so while Genesis 3 is, is a pain point because it deals with the question of what went wrong. There is joy and hope here because this is the beginning of the story of redemption. Remember Paul in his letter to, to the Corinthians would, would explain it this way. He said in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. From the very outset, Despite active rebellion against, God is going to move and work to restore humanity into right relationship with him. And so today, I find it perfect that, that it has worked out that we come to the Lord's table. Because if, if you, I say this carefully, like, I think if you're honest with yourself, I think you can acknowledge and recognize internally we have a need. There is a brokenness that we experience. I experience it sometimes at the hands of others, other people's brokenness being poured out on me, but I'm also not so naive to think that other people don't experience pain and suffering as a result of my brokenness poured out on them. But in, in all of us, the joy is is what we're ultimately going to see God do in order to redeem and store the, the degree to which he is going to pursue humanity by, by becoming one of us, taking on flesh. And that's what we remember at, at the Lord's table. And so today we've been kind of doing this a little bit differently over the last few months. Um, and if you're new with us, 
Let me just say that, that the Lord's table at Chapel Street, is there's no requirement of membership here or um, um, you don't have to be a part of, of this church to come to the Lord's table. The only stipulation that we see in Scripture is that you have placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And if you're here today and you're still exploring who Jesus is and, and what is grace even all about, what that's totally okay. I would encourage you to just observe um, the body of Christ coming to the table as an expression of, of how we've placed our faith in him, what that means to us. In just a few moments, I'll, I'll pray for us. And after I pray, I will come and, and lay out the elements um, as you're ready, as uh, Daniel and the team leads us in worship, um, you can come to the table. I'll ask you to come down the center aisle and then go to what, whichever table uh, is open and you can take the elements and, and go back to your seat and take them as you're ready. So kind of come down the center aisle and, and then go back that direction. That'll kind of work for the flow uh, this morning. And as you have those elements, be reminded today that that bread that you take, Jesus told his disciples, this is my body given for you. When we take it, we remember his sacrifice on our behalf. And the cup, the cup he said is the blood of a new covenant. A new covenant that's been shed for the forgiveness of sins. His solution, his answer to the Genesis 3 problem. And so today as you take these elements, as you come to the table, be reminded that what the pain and the brokenness that, that we experience in a fallen world is met by the love and grace of a Savior who would take it all on on the cross and defeat it in the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us at the table this morning? Jesus, would you remind us again that you do not leave us in the, in, the in the separation and the shame, that you actually run to us. Even in our hiding, you run to us. Lord, remind us again of the joy of your presence as we come to the table, as we take your body and your blood, and we're reminded of what you have accomplished on our behalf. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. I think one of the beauties of, of understanding sin is, is, is that it helps us understand grace. And, uh, and I think, I hope, that that's what the table invited you into today. It's just how much your God loves you and how he pursues you in, in the midst of, of the mess, right? If you know me for more than five minutes, you know I'm a mess. Jesus meets us there. Where we were running from, he ran to. Would you stand with me? Receive this morning's benediction. If we can pray with you this morning, it's a, it's a privilege to do that. We've got a prayer team available. That'll be down here. Uh, if you came prepared to give, our, your generosity boxes are by the side doors. Now receive this morning's benedictions. Go in the name of Jesus Christ the one who knew no sin, but bore it all on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.